Chapter Twenty, Part Two of the Naval Officer, or Scenes in the Life and Adventures of Frank Mildmay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Edward Kirkby of Warwick, England. The Naval Officer, or Scenes in the Life and Adventures of Frank Mildmay, by Captain Frederick Marriott. Chapter Twenty, Part Two. It might have been supposed that an act like this would have prevented the reoccurrence of any further insult, but the more the Americans perceived Thompson's value, the more eager were they to have him as their own. The second mate, whom I have already described as a rough and brutal fellow, one day proposed to him to belong to their vessel, certain, he added, that he would make his fortune by the capture of two, if not three, extra India men, which they had information of on their passage. Thompson looked the man fully in the face, and said, "'Do you know hear what I tell the captain the other day?' "'Yes,' said the man, "'I knew that, but that's what we call in our country, all my eye.' "'But they do not call it so in my country,' said the Caledonian, at the same time planting his fist so full and plump in the left eye of the mate, that he fell like the umibos, covering a very large part of the deck with his huge carcass. The man got up, found his face bleeding plentifully, and his eye closed but instead of resenting the insult himself, went off and complained to the captain. Many of the Americans, either from hatred or jealousy, went along with him, and clamorously demanded that the Englishman should be punished for striking an officer. When the story, however, came to be fairly explained, the captain said he was bound to confess that the second mate was the aggressor, inasmuch as he had acknowledged that he knew the penalty of the transgression before he committed the act, that he, the captain, had told Thompson, when he made the declaration, that he thought him perfectly right, and consequently he was bound to protect him by every law of hospitality, as well as gratitude, after his services in saving the lives of their countrymen. This did not satisfy the crew. They were clamorous for punishment, and a mutiny was actually headed by the second mate. There was, however, a large party on board, who were in no humour to see an Englishman treated with such indignity of what country they were may readily be conjectured. The dispute ran high, and I began to think that serious consequences might ensue, for it had continued from the serving of grog at twelve o'clock till near two, when casting my eyes over the larboard quarter I perceived a sail, and told the captain of it. He instantly hailed the lookout man at the masthead, but the lookout man had been so much interested with what was going on upon the deck that he came down to the main top to listen. "'Don't you see that sail on the larboard quarter?' said the captain. "'Yes, sir,' said the man. "'And why did you not report her?' The man could make no reply to this question, for a very obvious reason. "'Come down here,' said the captain. "'Let him be released, Solomon. We will show you a little Yankee discipline.' But before we proceed to the investigation of the crime or the infliction of punishment, we must turn our eyes to the great object which rose clearer and clearer every five minutes above the horizon. The privateer was at this time under topsails and topgallant sails, jib and foresail, running to the northeast with a fine breeze and smooth water. Lieutenant, said the captain, what do you think of her? I think, said I, that she is an extra Indian man, and if you mean to speak her, you had better put your head towards her under an easy sail, by which means you will be so near by sunset that if she runs from you, you will be able with your superior sailing to keep sight of her all night. I guess you are not far wrong in that, said the captain. 
I guess he is directly in the face of truth, said the chief mate, who had just returned from the main top, where he had spent the last quarter of an hour in the most intense and absorbed attention to the cut of the stranger's sails. If e'er I saw wood and canvas put together before in the shape of a ship, that there is one of John Bull's bellowing calves of the sea, and not less than a forty-gunner. What say you to that, Lieutenant? said the captain. Ah, as to that, said the mate, it isn't very likely that he's going to tell us the truth, because you would not have done it yourself in the same situation, said I. Just so, said the mate, and in fact, I must own that I had no particular wish to cruise for some months in this vessel, and go back for water at Tristan de Cunha. I therefore did not use my very best optical skill when I gave my opinion, but as I saw the stranger was nearing us very fast, although we were steering the same way, I made my mind up that I should very soon be out of this vessel and on my way to England, where all my happiness and prospects were centred. The chief mate took one more look, the captain followed his example. They then looked at each other and pronounced their cruise at an end. We are done, sir, said the mate, and all owing to that English renegado that you would enter on the books as one of the ship's company. But let's have him aft and give him his discharge regularly. First of all, said the captain, suppose we try what is to be done with our heels. They used to be good, and I never saw the brass-bottomed sarpent that could come a near as yet. Send the royal yards up, clear away the studding sails, keep her with the wind just two points abaft the beam, that's her favourite position, and I think we may give the slip to that old country devil in the course of the night. I said nothing, but looked very attentively at all that was doing. The vessel was well manned, certainly, and all sail was set upon her in a very expeditious manner. Heave the log, said the captain. They did so, and she was going by their measurement nine and six. What do you think your ship is doing said the captain to me i think said i she is going about eleven knots and as she is six miles astern of you that she will be within gunshot in less than four hours part of that time shall be spent in paying our debts for this favour said the captain mr solomon let them seize that no-nation rascal up to the main rigging and hand up two of your most hungry cats where is dig twist he that was boatswain's mate of the Statira, and that red-haired fellow you know that swam away from the maidstone in the Rappahannock. You mean Carroty Sam, I guess. Pass the word for Sam Gall. The two operators soon appeared, and each armed with the instruments of his office, and I must say that in malignity of construction they were equal to anything used on a similar occasions, even by Captain G. The culprit was now brought forward, and to my surprise it was the very man whom Thompson, when in the boat, had thrown overboard for mutiny. I cannot say that I felt sorry for the cause or the effect that was likely to be produced by the disputes of the day. Seize him up, said the captain. You were sent to the masthead on your regular turn of duty, and you have neglected that duty, by which means we are likely to be taken. So before my authority ceases, I will show you a Yankee trick. I'm an Englishman, said the man, and appeal to my officer for protection. The captain looked at me. If I am the officer you appeal to, said I, I do not acknowledge you. You threw off your allegiance when you thought it suited your purpose, and you now wish to resume it to screen yourself from a punishment which you richly deserve. I shall certainly not interfere in your favour. I was born, roared the Cockney, in Earl Street, seven dials. My mother keeps a tripe shop. I'm a true-born Briton, and you have no right to flog me. You was a Yankee sailor from New London yesterday, and you are a tripe seller from old London today? I think I am right in calling you a no-nation rascal, but we will talk about the right another time, said the captain. Meanwhile, 
Dick Twist, do you begin? Twist obeyed his orders with skill and accuracy, and having given the prisoner three dozen that would not have disgraced the legermane of my friend the Farnese Hercules in the brig, Sam Gaul was desired to take his turn. Sam acquitted himself a Mobilille with the like number, and the prisoner, after a due proportion of bellowing, was cast loose. I could not help reflecting how very justly this captain had got his vessel into jeopardy by first allowing a man to be seduced from his allegiance, and then placing confidence in him. Let us now take a look at the chase, said the captain. Zounds, she draws up with us. I can see her bowsprit cap when she lifts, and half an hour ago I only saw her foreyard. Cut away the jolly boat from the stern, Solomon. The chief mate took a small axe, and with a steady blow at the end of each davit, divided the falls, and the boat fell into the sea. Throw these here two aftermost guns overboard, said the captain. I guess we are too deep abaft, and they would not be of much use to us in the way of defence, for this is a whapper that's after us. The guns in a few minutes were sent to their last rest, and for the next half hour the enemy gained less upon them. It was now about half-past three p.m. Courage of the Yankees revived, and the second mate reminded the captain that his black eye had not been reckoned for at the main rigging. Nor shall it be, said the captain, while I command the true-blooded Yankee. What is, is right. No man shall be punished for fair defence after warning. Thompson, come and stand aft. The man was in the act of obeying this order, when he was seized upon by six or eight of the most turbulent who began to tear off his jacket. Avast there, shipmates, said Twist and Gaul, both in a breath. We don't mind touching up such a chap as this here tripe man, but not the scratch of a pin does Thompson get in this vessel. He is one of us, he is a seaman every inch of him, and you must flog us and some fifty more if once you begin, but damn my eyes if we don't heave the log with the second mate and then lay to till the frigate comes alongside. The mutineer stood aghast for a few seconds, but the second mate, jumping on a gun, called out, Who's of our side? Are we going to be bullied by these Britishers? You are, said I. If doing an act of justice is bullying, you are in great danger, and I warn you of it. I perceive the force of those whom you pretend to call Americans, and though I am the last man in the world to sanction an act of treachery by heaving the ship to, let I caution you to be aware how you provoke the bulldog, who has only broke his master's chain for a lark, and is ready to return to him. I am your guest, and therefore your faithful friend. Use your utmost endeavours to escape from your enemy. I know what she is, for I know her well, and if I am not much mistaken, you have scarcely more time with all your exertions than to pack up your things, for be assured you will not pass twelve hours more under your own flag. This address had a tranquillizing effect. The captain, Captain Green, and Solomon walked aft, and to their great dismay saw distinctly the water-line of the pursuing frigate. What can be done, said the captain? She is gaining on us in this manner, while the people were all aft, setting that infernal dispute. Throw two more of the after-guns overboard. This order was obeyed with the same celerity as the former, but not with the same success. The captain now began to perceive what was pretty obvious to me before, namely that by dropping the boat from the extreme end of the vessel, where it hung like the pea on the steel yard, he did good. The lightning her also of the two aftermost guns hanging over the dead wood of the vessel were in like manner serviceable. But here he should have stopped. The effect of throwing the next two guns overboard was pernicious. The vessel fell by the head, her stern was out of the water. She steered, wild, yawned, and decreased her rate of sailing in a surprising manner. Cut away the bower anchors, said the captain. 
the stoppers were cut and the anchors dropped the brig immediately recovered herself from her repression as it were and resumed her former velocity but the enemy had by this time made fearful approaches the only hope of the captain and his crew was in the darkness and as this darkness came on my spirits decreased for i greatly feared that we should have escaped the sun had sunk some time below the horizon the cloud of sail coming up astern of us began to be indistinct and at last disappeared altogether in a black squall we saw no more of her for nearly two hours i walked to the deck with green and the captain the latter seemed in great perturbation he had hoped to make his fortune and retire from the toils and cares of sea life in some snug corner of the western settlements where he might cultivate a little farm and lead the life of an honest man for this life said he i am free to confess is after all little better than highway robbery whether the moral essay of the captain was the effect of his present danger i will not pretend to say i only know that if the reader will turn back to some parts of my history he will find me very often in a similar mood on similar occasions the two captains and the chief mate now retired after leaving me meditating by myself over the larboard gunwale just before the main rigging the consultation seemed to be of great moment and as i afterwards learned was to decide what course they should steer seeing that they evidently lost sight of their pursuer i felt all my hopes of release vanish as i looked at them and i had made up my mind to go to new york at this moment a man came behind me as if to get a pull at the top-gallant sheets and while he hung down upon it with a kind of yee-ho he whispered in my ear you may have the command of the brig if you like we are fifty englishmen we will leave her to you and hoist a light if you will only say the word and promise us our free pardon i pretended at first not to hear but turning round i saw mr twist hold villain said i do you think to redeem one act of treachery by another and do you dare to insult the honour of a naval officer with a proposal so infamous go to your station instantly and think yourself fortunate that i do not denounce you to the captain who has a perfect right to throw you overboard a fate which your chain of crimes fully deserves the man skulked away and i went off to the captain to whom i related the circumstances desiring him to be on his guard against treachery your conduct sir said the captain is what i should have expected from a british naval officer and since you have behaved so honourably i will freely tell you that my intention is to shorten sail to the topsails and foresail and haul dead on a wind into that dark squall to the southward as you please said i you cannot expect that i should advise nor would you believe me if i said i wished you success but rely on it i will resist by every means in my power any unfair means to dispossess you of your Command. i thank you sir said the captain mournfully and without losing any more time in useless words shorten sail there continued he with a low but firm voice taking the lower and topmost studding sail hands aloft in top-gallant studding sails and roll up the top-gallant sails all this appeared to be done with surprising speed even to me who had been accustomed to very well conducted ships of war one mistake however was made the lower studding sail instead of being hauled in on deck was let to fall overboard and towed some time under the larboard bow before it was reported to the officers haul in the larboard braces brace sharp up port the helm and bring her to the wind quartermaster port it is sir said the man at the helm and the vessel was close hauled upon the starboard tack but she did not seem to move very fast although she had a square mainsail boom mainsail and jib i think we have done them at last said the captain what do you think lieutenant giving me a hearty but friendly slap on the back 
Come, what do you say? Shall we take a cool bottle of London particular after the fatigues of the day? Wait a little, said I. Wait a little. What are you looking at there to the windward? said the captain, who perceived that my eye was fixed on a particular point. Before I had time to answer, Thompson came up to me and said, There is the ship, sir, pointing to the very spot on which I was gazing. The captain heard this, and as fear is ever quick-sighted, he instantly caught the object. Running is of no use now, said he. We have tried her off the wind, our best going, she beats us at that, and on the wind I don't think so much of her, but still, with this smooth water and fine breeze, she ought to move better. Solomon, there is something wrong. Give a look around. Solomon went forward on the starboard side, but saw nothing as he looked over the gangway and bow. Coming round on the lee side of the forecastle, he saw some canvas hanging on one of the night heads. What have we here? said he. No one answered. He looked over the fore chains and found the whole lower studding sail towing in the water. No wonder she won't move, said the mate. Here is enough to stop the constitution herself. Who took in this here lower studding sail? But never mind, we'll settle that tomorrow. Come over here, you forecastle men. Some of the Americans came over to him, but not with great alacrity. The sail could not be pulled in as the vessel had too much way, and while they were ineffectually employed about it, the flash of a gun was seen to windward, and as the report reached our ears, the shot whistled over our heads and darted like lightning through the boom mainsail. Hooray for old England, said Thompson. The fellow that fired that shot shall drink my allowance of grog tomorrow. Hold your tongue, you... English rascal, said the second mate, or I'll stop your grog for ever. I don't think you will, said the North Briton, and if you take a friend's advice you won't try. Thompson was standing on a little round house or poop. The indignant mate jumped up and collared him. Thompson disengaged him in the twinkling of an eye, and with one blow of his right hand in the pit of the man's stomach sent him reeling over to the leeward. He fell, caught at the boom sheet, missed it, and tumbled into the sea, from whence he rose no more. All was now confusion. A man overboard, another shot from the frigate, another and another in quick succession. The fate of the man was forgotten in the general panic. One shot cut the aftermast main shroud, another went through the boat on the booms. The frigate was evidently very near us. The men all rushed down to seize their bags and chests. The captain took me by the hand and said, Sir, I surrender myself to you and give you leave now to act as you think proper. Thompson, said I, let go the main sheet and the main brace. Running forward myself, I let go the main tack and bow lines. The main yard came square of itself. Thompson got a lantern, which he held up on the starboard quarter. The frigate passed close under the stern, showing a beautiful pale side with a fine tier of guns, and hailing us, desired to know what vessel it was. I replied that it was the true-blooded Yankee of Boston, that she had hove to and surrendered. End of chapter 20, part 2. Recording by Edward Kirkby of Warwick, England.